Welcome to the Uncle Dan and Sophie Jam. I'm Dan Wakefield. I'm a writer. This is a show of words and music. I'm Sophie Fott. I'm a musician. We believe music and stories are made for each other. That's what we'll give you. Tonight, we're talking about overcoming obstacles, and our guest is the world-famous vocalist, Everett Green. Thank you for being here. Welcome, everyone. <laughs> that was our classy radio intro. <laughs> now we shall begin the radio show. <laughs> so, Dan, we're going to start with you. Can you tell us what your first big obstacle that you faced in your writing career was? Yeah, I think of this as my <clears throat> first big setback. Um, I started off very luckily, very fortunately, um, I, through a big break, uh, was able to cover the Emmett Till murder trial and then wrote a number of articles for the Nation magazine, went to Israel for them. And when I came back, I wrote a journalistic book about Spanish Harlem called Island in the City, the World of Spanish Harlem. And then I was ready for what I'd felt I had primed myself for, for my whole life, and that was to write a novel. And when I was about 10 years old, I told people I had written a novel. It was a football story called Lateral Pass. <laughs> and I said it was a novel, but it was only nine pages. <laughs> so I guess that didn't count. But at any rate, uh, I was looking forward to that, and I felt almost everything I'd been doing as a writer was really preparation for that. And so after the Spanish Harlem book came out and got nice reviews, I settled down and I wrote the first 50 pages of my big novel. And I gave it to my literary agent, who was a great guy and who always liked whatever I did. And he was going to send it to the publisher who'd published my Spanish Harlem book. And so we didn't hear for a while. And then finally he called me up and said, well, we heard from the publisher, which was Houghton Mifflin, a distinguished old Boston firm who had published the first book. And they wanted to have bring me, they wanted to pay for me to come to Boston and take me to lunch at one of the fanciest restaurants in Boston. So I said to my agent, is this news good or bad? And he said, well, it could be either one. So you just have to go and find out. So I go up to Boston and I went to this lunch at a restaurant called Lockovers, which was famous as being John F. Kennedy's famous, favorite restaurant. And they made uh, a clam chowder that was his favorite, so I'm all psyched up for this. 
And to my surprise, my own uh, editor, a young woman who had been my editor on the first book I wrote, wasn't there. And it was more, the, the people there were the, the publisher, the president of the Houghton Mifflin Company and the managing editor. So these were like the big dogs. And so we sat at this wonderful table at Lockover's and they ordered for me a dish called lobster thermidor. And for reasons you'll see, I never ate that thing again. Uh, so we first just talked back and forth and finally got to the subject. And they said, you know, Dan, we've read the 50 pages of your novel that you submitted, your agent submitted. And we think you're a wonderful young journalist. I was young at the time. <laughs> and, uh, but you're not a novelist. And I must say, I later thought they could have at least said, we don't like that 50 pages, rather than having to say, you're not a novelist. And uh, it was really a, a crushing blow and I went back to New York, and there was one woman, um, a poet named Mae Swenson, who was a great poet. And I knew, knew that she believed in me, and she believed in my ability to sometime write a novel. And that was a crucial factor, to have somebody who I knew believed in me and who I respected her work. And I knew it was not going to be easy, and it would take a long time. And in those days, I had to keep writing magazine articles to pay the rent. So there was very little time to take out to work in an extended way on the novel. But I kept doing it. I kept working at it. And I would work nights and afternoons and do the journalism stuff during the day. And I must have started novels six or seven times over the next years. This, the, the famous luncheon took place in 1959. And by 1968, <clears throat> I still hadn't written a novel. And although I had made about eight different starts, and without even showing them to people, I could read them over and thinking, no, this is not good enough. So I had this terrible fear that I'd be like one of these guys I had met a number of who often journalists who said, oh, I've got a novel in the drawer. And boy, when I get that thing out and finish it, it's really going to be great. And I didn't want to be one of those guys who always had a novel in the drawer, but not <laughs> in the public print. So I had just finished a big journalism project. I wrote the whole issue of the Atlantic Monthly in 1968, and it was based on my traveling around the country and, uh, and writing, the assignment was to write The Effect of Vietnam on This Country. So the issue came out called Supernation at Peace and War. So I had a little bit of money ahead for the first time in my life. And um, I had just taught for a semester at the University of Illinois. 
And I thought, okay, this is it. This is my time to write the novel. And I didn't know where to go to write it. And I had some writer friends in Los Angeles, Joan Didion and John Gregory Dunn. And they said, well, come out here. We'll find you a place in Venice, California, and you can write your novel. So I got out there and they did find me an apartment. And out of the blue, I got a wonderful letter from the Rockefeller Foundation and said, we, essentially, we want to give you a grant uh, to write a book, so just give us a proposal. So I wrote up a proposal, and uh, they wanted an expense, you know, what it would cost me to live for a year, and I showed it to Joan Diddy and John Dunn, and they said, Dan, you'll never get this grant. I said, why not? And they said, you're not asking for enough money. So I said, well, how much shall I ask for? And they said, well, just double that amount that you asked for. Because I had asked for the minimum of sort of what I usually lived on anyway. And they said, no, that's not enough. So I doubled it, and I got the grant. So, oh my God, I said, this is it. It's now or never. And I sat down and started that novel, and I have to tell you, uh, that's the novel that became Going All the Way. And it took me a month to write the first paragraph. And it really came slowly. And after that month, sometimes I'd write two sentences a day, or maybe a whole other paragraph a day, and then maybe a page or two pages, and it slowly built up like that. And uh, by the time it reached the halfway point, I had gone back to Boston to finish it, and, and the, the more you wrote, the more pages I got every day. And I had an office at the Atlantic Monthly, and I sat there and just writing, and as it really started to come out, I was really having fun writing it, which is the best sign of all. And uh, so I, I uh, had my agent, I finished the novel. I had my agent send it to 10 different publishers. Only three were even interested, and one of them really loved it. And the one who loved it happened to be the publisher of Kurt Vonnegut's novels. So he said to me, do you mind if I send your novel to Kurt? <clears throat> because uh, if, if he endorsed it, that would be a great plus for the book and help us to get a good advance. And I said, well, I've only met Kurt Vonnegut once in my life, and our main bond is we went to Shortridge High School. <clears throat> and uh, I have no idea what he'd think of the book, but go ahead and send it to him. So. He did that, and the next thing I heard was a call from my publisher, and he said, I want to read you a uh, telegram that I got from Kurt Vonnegut about your book. And it said, Dear Sam, you must publish this important novel, Get This Boy in Our Stable. So that really made it. And Vonnegut not only did that, he reviewed the novel in Life magazine and that really made it a bestseller. And of course, one of the first copies I got, I sent to Houghton Mifflin, the publisher who had told me I was not a novelist. <laughs> so 
my lesson out of that was don't let anybody else tell you who you are. Yes, we should clap for that. <laughs> we're going to play a song, and then we're going to come back and hear a little bit more about all of that experience. We're going to play I Thought About You. I took a trip on a train and I thought about you. I passed a shadowy lane and I thought about you. Two or three cars parked under the stars, winding stream, moon shining down on some little town with each beam the same old dream. Every stop we made, I thought about you. And when I pulled down the shade, I really turned blue. I peeped through the crack and looked at the track, no one going back to you. What did I do? I thought about you.
Steve Snyder on the organ, Kenny Phelps on the drums, and that's Eric Green on vocals. Thank you, Sophie, and thank you, Everett. And uh, Sophie, I would really like to hear your story of people telling you who you should be or who you were. Well, yeah, um, so for me, I grew up uh, in Indianapolis and got interested in music pretty young and uh, was lucky to come in contact with a lot of great musicians in town and Everett was one of them, someone I looked up to from a young age. And um, I think a lot of the people I encountered you know, heard me play and thought, well, she's gonna be a musician. And I didn't argue with them because it sounded like a fun <laughs> idea for me, to me, but, um, you know, to be a jazz musician, for a lot of people, they just assume that means, well, you're gonna live in New York and you're gonna be touring a lot and, and that's what your life is gonna look like. And so that was kind of the vision that I think a lot of my mentors and influences had for me. And I didn't, necessarily question that for a long time. I just assumed, yeah, you're probably right. I guess I'll live in New York and I'll tour and that's the life I'm gonna live because why not? Sounds like fun. I love playing music. I'd like to play music every day. Um, but then I had the opportunity to actually move out to the East Coast um, when I was 19. I was living in Philadelphia and playing in New York and playing in Philadelphia and going to school and really uh, getting to see what that lifestyle is like for people. Being on the road is not as glamorous as <laughs> people think. I don't know if there are any made-for-TV movies about it that portray it accurately. I know there are a lot that make it look really, really fun. And it's actually not. <laughs> Maybe there should be a movie like that. It'd be pretty depressing. Nobody would want to watch it. So I'm sure it would sell lots of tickets. But... Uh, <laughs> You know, um, there's just a lot of realities to being on the road that, that I saw, and I'm sure Kenny and Steve can speak to those as well. Um, Kenny has been on the road a lot more than I ever have or probably ever want to be. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, it, it's not glamorous. And then also, when you get to know the musicians who live that lifestyle, you see that um, having a family life, having a home can be a challenge because you're not there very often. And um, how do you have a family or marriage that works or a home that feels like a home and not a hotel room if you don't live there and you're not a part of those people's lives? And um, so for me, as I started to realize that, um, that that was what this life really looked like, uh, it started to seem less and less attractive because when it comes right down to it, I kind of have these boring interests in having a house and a couch I can sit on and <laughs> a kid, <laughs> two kids. <laughs> and, um, and I always saw myself as somebody who would have a family someday and raise that family in uh, a happy, healthy, safe home. And I realized that a huge part of that is having a mom who is present. And so, um, so yeah, I think at that age of 19, and 20 when I was you know, living on the East Coast and I was getting to play some pretty cool gigs. I was playing with Nicholas Payton and I did a little bit of touring in that um, context and I was getting to play with a lot of other, I mean, people that were musical idols to me, like Slide Hampton and Jimmy Heath and 
just names that I still almost shudder to say, <laughs> but um, realizing I am going to have to take a step back from this because I'm not sure exactly what I want, but I know a couple things that I want and they don't seem to mesh with this lifestyle. And obviously it's a long way off for me. It was another six or seven years before I got married and another 10 years before I had kids, but which to a, to a 19 year old is a long time. <laughs> Maybe to some of you that doesn't seem like very long, <laughs> but, but looking into the future and just seeing that um, I was gonna have to reorganize my life and my priorities and I was gonna have to find a way to be able to make music and still have those other things too. And um, luckily for me, I come from a city that has um, an amazing jazz heritage and a lot of musicians, and it is absolutely possible to be musically fulfilled right here in Indianapolis and play really good music with really great musicians whose names may not be known everywhere, but they probably should be because they're worth knowing. And so, um, so I came home and I actually uh, just <coughs> took some time off from playing and took some time to think about who I was as a person, not just who I was as a musician. And I think that was a really fruitful time for me because it really helped me realize um, what, what had been going on was that I had been following a path that had been set out before me. And what I wanted to do was find my own path. And so that's what I've been doing ever since. And it's not glamorous either. That made for TV movie wouldn't sell <laughs> either, <laughs> but, but it's my life and I like it. Well, we are going to next play a song in tribute to Dan from the <laughs> East. <laughs> it is called Autumn in New York. <laughs> It's time to end my lonely holiday and bid the country a hasty farewell. So on this gray and melancholy day, I'll move to a Manhattan hotel. I'll dispose of my rose-colored chattels and prepare for my share of adventures and battles here on the 97th floor looking down on the city I hate and adore Autumn in New York Why does it seem
this autumn in New York transform the thrill of first night Autumn in New York is often you're listening to the Uncle Dan and Sophie Jam, and we're broadcasting to you uh, from the Jazz Kitchen in Indianapolis. So I think um, the thing that stands out about everybody's story, and this goes back to Dan's initial point, is, you know, defining your path for yourself. And as an artist, most artists definitely have a, a mentor relationship. And part of that relationship, I think, is letting someone else be your guide, letting someone else show you the way, that's a good thing. That's what you want to do because they have a lifetime of experience to share with you. But at a certain point, part of growing up for an artist and maybe for everybody is kind of making the decision, now I'm going to go my way. Well, that's what you say. You know, if somebody tell you you can't do it, follow your own mind, you know. Well, I think one of the lessons that you learn as you start to grow up and mature is your instincts are worth trusting. Usually they tell you the right thing. Yeah. I have a thing I call gig ESP, which is very useful now that telemarketers call from 317 numbers. But basically an unknown number calls and you just use your gig ESP to know if it's a gig or a robot. 
<laughs> and I guess, I mean, I think the point is that um, you can learn a lot about people if you trust your instincts. And, um, and sometimes music teaches you that too because you meet somebody that you've never, you've never met before and it's time to play and it's time to sound like a band and you've known each other for maybe five minutes but your instincts will lead you the right direction. Would you say that's true, Everett? Yes, for sure. You know, like I said, when you, when you can have fun doing what you're doing, that's what I, my theory. My theory is having fun in what you're doing. It is music, so you have to keep singing and keep doing what you do and uh, to make it work. But, uh, well, we're going to play one more song in the first half. Um, this is one that I remember hearing Everett play as a young, or hear him sing as a young person. and. Uh, I've always loved your voice. I've always loved your voice. And so I'm really excited to play it with you now. It's Stella by Starlight. I'm so happy Ooh. to be here with you.
on the drums, Dan Wakefield on the microphone, and Sophie Fott will be right back after a break. <laughs> Thank you so much. Okay, so, <laughs> Everett, we would yes. like to go back in time to when you first arrived on the scene in Indianapolis. How did you come here? Well, I, uh, from Washington, D.C. originally, and I uh, couldn't wait. Well, I was a doo-wopper in Washington, D.C. Went into the Marine Corps and during the Korean conflict, or war, they call it now. And I came to Indianapolis to spend a weekend, because my mom had moved here. So uh, I was definitely only going to stay a weekend, because I couldn't wait to get back home to be doo-wopping again. So uh, one week, well, weekend turned into one whole week. Then I would get out and I would hear some of the musicians playing around town and uh, thought how wonderful they were, you know, so, but still had no intention of staying. Then one week turned into two and boredom set in and uh, someone told me, said, well, I know where you can find a job if you don't mind getting dirty. So I said, well, since I'm gonna be here, I may as well, you know, find some work. I discovered a foundry International Harvest, and I found dirt that you couldn't wash off, you know, for three or four days. But anyway, uh, coming out, coming here, and I uh, was really beginning to enjoy the music, the type of music that was being played around town. At that time, uh, so many of the local musicians were guys who went on to become world famous. The West Montgomery's, Freddie Hubbard, Larry Ridley, and all these guys were local musicians. And they were mostly playing on Indiana Avenue, is that right? Uh, yeah, they were playing, there were so many, many places to play in Indianapolis <clears throat> in, in 1955. I mean, you could go all over town and find uh, some place to hear good music. And uh, there were so many of the un unheard of musicians who would come to Indianapolis because they heard of the people like Wes and Freddie and uh, people like Jack McDuff. Uh, yeah. And J.J. J.J. Yeah, well, J.J. had gone when I got here in 55. But uh, uh, these, these musicians came here to hang out. Uh, Roland Kirk, who ever heard of a saxophone player playing three saxophones? You know, you didn't hear of him. But he was here before he was heard of because of the musicians who were here. Anyway, I uh, would get out. I had to 
I joined the church choir, first of all, and uh, <laughs> after I decided I was going to stay, and I was always singing the octave lower than the bass in the choir, so, <laughs> so, so the director told me, okay, you come by the house and we'll just work on some music. So we just started practicing every day, and I started singing a lot of the old songs that I had heard many years ago. Got a chance to go out, and, uh, at the, and back in those days, they would have jam sessions every weekend. Every Saturday, they have jam sessions at most of the clubs, four o'clock on a Saturday afternoon. So you go and you sit in, you sit in and uh, work with the guys, and you kind of hope that they call you and not, you know, ignore you. So you have to learn to work with the musicians. I found that uh, the singers who would go up and want to be leaders didn't get a chance to play very, sing very much, you know. <laughs> so you learn some of those lessons. So uh, I was, uh, after a little while, I, I was in a place called The Hubbub, where Wes Montgomery was playing. And uh, I was in, they called it, well, they gave it the amateur night. And if you won that amateur night, you get a chance to work for a whole week with the band. So I worked with Mingo Jones, Wes Montgomery, Dr. Willis Kirk, and uh, Earl Van Riper. A whole week, I was in heaven. I was in seventh heaven working with these guys. <laughs> I'd like to go back to uh, when you first got to Indianapolis. You told me that uh, you had a special next door neighbor. Who was uh, that? Who was your next door neighbor? Oh, Wes Montgomery was my next door neighbor. <laughs> he eventually became my next door neighbor. And uh, it was up like working to the place of the, the hub. That's where I got my first job with Wes Montgomery and those guys. And like I said, didn't know uh, whether I got paid or not. But anyway, one day he was on the porch practicing and I asked him about a song. I said, do you know Willow Weep for me? He said, oh yeah, I haven't played that for a long, long time. So, you know, now, after then, I, I heard about four or five recordings of Wes playing Willow Wee for me. And I went through my chest out. I said, okay, I introduced that song to him again. So <laughs> and we're going to introduce that song to you guys right now. Thank mm -hmm. you. 
whisper to the wind and say that love is sin to leave my heart a breaking and making a moan mirror to the night to hide her starry light so none will find me crying and sighing all alone weeping willow tree weep in sympathy Bend your branches down along the ground, cover me. When the shadows fall, bend old willow and Whisper to the wind to say that love is sin. To leave my heart a aching and breaking among. Murmur to the night to hide her starry light. So none will find me crying and sighing all alone. Weeping willow tree, weeping sympathy. Bend your branches down along the ground, cover me. When the shadows fall, bend no willow and weep for me. 
shadows fall Bend no willow and Kenny Phelps, Evergreen. Well, one of the things that I've always really admired about you is just your approach to life and your attitude and your determination to be joyful and sing and happy regardless of what's going on around you. Well, you know, my theory is if I can do something about a situation, good or bad, then I will. If I can't do anything about it, I leave it alone and deal with it, you know, uh, musically or anything, any other situation, you know. And when you were in Korea, is that where you first began to deal with your hearing loss issues? Uh, well, I had, uh, I got some very, very badly infected somehow, very badly infection in my ears. And uh, uh, they were experimenting on me. One day my ears were yellow and then it was purple and, and so forth. So they didn't want to let me come home uh, because they, they couldn't figure out what was going on with them. And uh, so when I did get discharged, I had to go straight to the VA. And uh, back in those days, going to the VA was like, you had to take your bedroll, your breakfast, lunch, and dinner <laughs> because it was a long, long process. But uh, you know, I finally went to my own private ear doctor and it got a little better. But they were never, never the same. Uh, I found out that uh, the flap in your ear that buffers loud sounds, simply that deteriorates. Uh, and when, that go when that's gone, any loud sound would just go straight to the cochlear and damage all the cells. I, I was uh, uh, totally deaf uh, six years ago, and I had uh, steroid injections for two years. And I'll probably start all over again because the ears are still deteriorating. And uh, you know, hey, as long as I can keep singing if I can hear the music, you know, it's been, I've been doing this for 70 years. So as long as I can hear the music, I'm fine. So hopefully the music never stops. So you've dealt with hearing loss virtually your entire musical career. Yes, but it wasn't nowhere near as severe as it is today, you know. Does it ever get you, get you down? Just no. No, it, it doesn't get me down at all. I just know there are times when I don't hear people and I say, okay, fine. I think writers have a love of words and sentences like you guys have a love of, of music. In fact, I, I was going to ask you both, I know with writers, there's always when you're young, a particular writer or book that hits you and say, oh my God, that's what I want to do. And I wonder if that if you you must have had that with a musician or that you cared about. Well, for me, I, I, I like I said, growing up as a doo-wopper, there was a uh, quartet, I was back in the quartet era, and there was a singer, a group called the Ravens, and they had this bass singer who was unbelievably, I heard him sing, we'll be a bumblebee or not. I said, wow, I want to sing bass. I was singing tenor at the time. <laughs> you know, so I wanted to sing bass. So I walked around, uh, 
I'm trying to go down, you know, in a low voice, you know. And one day I got a horse, and <laughs> my voice never came back. So, so, uh, <laughs> so that was a blessing, you know. So. <laughs> well, I have a kind of a, a memory. I mean, I I grew up playing music. I actually played classical piano for a long time before I played saxophones, and I was just always drawn to music, but. There was a time after I'd started playing saxophone and had gotten into jazz a little bit, my parents had this Miles Davis compilation CD that was pretty chintzy and didn't even say who the performers for each song were. Oh. <laughs> and uh, there was a record, it was uh, Someday My Prince Will Come, pretty classic recording. And I heard um, the, the John Coltrane solo on there and I was like, well, that sounds like John Coltrane. And then I heard this, this other solo it just sounded so perfect to me in every way and it was just so melodic and I'll never forget it I was like who is that so I get the liner notes out and I was like oh it doesn't say and back then we didn't have the internet in our homes so you couldn't just google it and I went all week not knowing who it was and just listening to it over and over and over and over again because I knew when I went into my lesson I could ask Harry and he would know Harry Miedema was my teacher I brought it in I was like Harry who is this? And he said, it's Hank Mobley. And I went out and bought three Hank Mobley CDs, and that was the beginning of the end for me. I just, what I love about him is that he plays the melody, and even when he's soloing, the melody is always there, and it's at the core of what he does, and it's the most powerful element. And, and that's what you do. And, and, and that's yeah. what, first when I first heard Sophie's, when I walked in, to the chatterbox and she was playing one of my favorite songs of the 50s I should care and I heard that melody and it was very powerful that's one of the things I I talked to uh, instrumentalists about I said learn the song learn the words of the song learn the melody of the song then you can do what you want to do with it but as long as you know the melody uh, there was one I think Dizzy talked to Coltrane one time and said, why'd you stop playing in the middle of the song? He said, I forgot the lyrics. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, you know, when you know the lyrics, you can emote whatever you feel, you know, so uh, it makes it a better horn player. You know. I, I gotta say, I gotta say one thing. Uh, you know, I've, all writers always talk about, oh, their first time reading Hemingway or Fitzgerald, but I realized what really turned me on as a kid was reading sports writers. And here you had great sports writers like Bob Collins and Corky Lamb. But I remember as a kid reading the greatest one of all was a guy named Grantland Rice. And his famous story, his famous lead was of a, a, a Notre Dame Army game in the 1920s. And it started out, uh, and Notre Dame won six to nothing. I think it started out uh, outlined against the blue-gray November sky, the four horsemen rode again. In ancient days, their names were pestilence, death. I can't remember what the other two were. Today, their names are Stuldrer, Crowley, Miller, and Layden. <laughs> oh, my God. That was well, I think we have time for one more melody to share with you all. This is a song that I've heard Everett sing many times and have always loved it. Every day I have the blues. Every day. <laughs> Thank you. 
every day. Every day I have the blues. Every day. Every day I have the blues. Well, you see me worrying, baby, because of you I hate to lose. Nobody loves me. Nobody seems to care. Nobody loves me, and nobody seems to care. Speaking of bad luck and trouble, well, you know I had my share. I'm gonna pack my suitcase, moving on down the line. I'm gonna pack my suitcase and move on down the line. There ain't nobody worrying, and there ain't nobody crying. Seem to me every day, every day, every day I have the blues. Every day, every day, every day I have the blues. When you see me worrying, baby, it's you that I hate to lose. Speaking of bad luck, 
in trouble. You know I had my share. I, 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 I'm begging up my suitcase and I'm moving on down the line. I, I'm packing up my suitcase and moving down the line. There ain't nobody worried and there ain't nobody crying. Every day I had the blues, I had the blues. Every day, every day I had the blues, I had the blues. Every day you see me, oh baby, because of you I hate to lose. Every day, every day, every day, every day I have the blues. Every day. Sophie. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here.